As we continue to worship this morning, I want to begin my sermons as I often do, which is with a little bit of an illustration. Uh, recently, I've heard about something that I, I've never tried and don't think I'd necessarily be any good at, but I know that many of you are, and it's this thing called repurposing or upcycling. So I asked online, as all, you know, people of our era do, and said, so what is this? You know, crowdsource it. Give me some illustrations. Facebook, fill in the gaps. Help me out here. And so some people did. They sent me some examples of their upcycling or their repurposing, and there's some really cool stuff where people take like a chest of drawers, and all of a sudden turn the drawers like on their side, nail them to the wall, and boom, you have these really cool shelves with hooks and handles and decorative pots and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, Wow, that's cool. They do things with skids and pallets. And uh, specifically, the one that I was most impressed with this week uh, was from a certain family in our congregation. We'll give them a generic name like, say, the Joneses. And what they told me about was this. They said, you know, we had this old boat that so-and-so inherited from his uncle, and it was, you know, a special boat, had all kinds of memories associated with it. They went fishing, and yet by the end of its life, it was no longer seaworthy, and as a result, there wasn't a lot we could do with it. We couldn't take it out on the water. We couldn't resell it. Fixing it up would cost more than buying a new one, so we didn't really know what to do, and we wanted to keep it. We didn't really want to throw it away. A lot of good stuff. So... Naturally, therefore, we decided to cut it in half and turn it into a reading nook. Oh, okay, what else would you do with a boat, right? That makes sense. And so here's a picture of it on their uh, house on the lake, which I think is really, really beautiful. It's where they sit and read or think or whatever. They told me all the boats stop by and look at it, and it makes this really cool thing. You see, originally what it was was one thing, and it had this purpose, but eventually that sort of wore out and was no longer of value. But then they took that broken, used, old, now seemingly meaningless thing and upcycled it and turned it into something much better with a better purpose than what it ever had before. In a similar way today, what I'm going to say from Mark chapter 1 verse 16 is that Jesus is basically doing the same thing with us. That by his call on our lives, Jesus is essentially repurposing our identity. He's taken us, people, this thing, this clay pot, if you will, and he's reforming it into something totally different. So what I want to do today is show you three things from Mark chapter 1, verse 16 and following. And those three things are this, a problem, a solution, and an application. The problem is the wrong identity. Often we walk around with this old, worn-out meaning or sense of purpose that no longer functions. And so what Jesus does when he comes into our life is he repurposes us, or he gives us a solution of a new identity. And therefore, the application is to submit our lives to Jesus' purpose, or submit ourselves to God's purpose for our lives. So that's Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 20. I'm going to read it like we normally do, but before we do... I want to show you a few pictures because what happens is this takes place on the Sea of Galilee and that's probably a bit foreign to most of us. We hear the word sea 
and we think, you know, big, like, giant body of water. But actually, it's quite a bit different. So I have some pictures I'm going to show you, sort of set it in context and give you the spot. So when you hear the words red, I want you to actually see these things that I'm showing you right now. So here's a picture of Lake Michigan. This is one we're probably familiar with on our West Bank, if you will. Uh, This is what we see as a a giant body of water that's close to us in the Lower Peninsula. And that little circle that's brought way out is the Sea of Galilee. So when you hear in this passage today, Sea of Galilee, and if you're thinking sea like Lake Michigan, what you should actually think is more like little tiny lake. In other words, the Sea of Galilee is... a is more like a lake than a giant body of water. You'll see this, like if, if you look at the lower peninsula and you look at Michigan, you look at the lakes and you compare the size of this one. This one's Sea of Galilee is 12 miles in length and 6 miles across. So its surface area is bigger than most of our inland bodies of water. But uh, it's, it's still the size of what many would consider a normal lake. So... Here's, here's the scale. Here's a picture of the Roman Empire at the time. And I got my fancy dancy little pointer in my pocket, and I'll show you where we're at as soon as I... Oh, not my pocket. Right here. We are on the west bank, not of Michigan, but of Jerusalem in the north, where the Sea of Galilee is. See, this is Jerusalem here. Here's the Mediterranean world. If you think of Lake Superior, and you want to know the scale here, Lake Superior is about the size of half of Italy. So when we say Mediterranean Sea, we are saying a great big body of water, a great big sea. When we say the Sea of Galilee, we're talking about a little inland lake that you can't even see right there in northern Israel. Israel itself is about the size of New Jersey, okay? So Michigan, uh, just the land mass is 50,000 square miles. The state of Israel is like 8,000 square miles. So uh, you can see it's quite a bit different. Flip the slide, we'll show them. Here's the Sea of Galilee in the north. It's fed by the Jordan River, which runs north to south uh, from the northern parts of Israel down into uh, its terminus or ending spot in the Dead Sea. So here's a picture of that river going into the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful spot of a fresh inland uh, water. In fact, uh, even today, this spot, next slide please, uh, composes about 50% of this nation's fresh water supply. So it's an arid climate. They have a few springs, but this is where they get the majority of their drinking water. It's also uh, a beautiful area in between the valleys and stuff. You can see another picture right here. And so it's a great spot to fish. In fact, there's 35 different species here, 16 of which are unique to this area alone. So this uh, inland lake supports a large fishing industry even today. Here's a picture of that. Uh, These are some old boats that aren't really used, but if you went out on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, you may see some guys like this using their motorboat. And they do actually have some nets in that boat, you can see. So they're still casting nets to catch fish. But 
If it were Jesus' day, probably what you would see would be something a little bit more like this. It's not a motorboat, but it's a boat with a sail and some oars. So it's going to have uh, both wind and human power to get it along the lake. If you're sort of an upscale fisherman, you have a boat. But if you're like me and the good old Missouri boys, then you're always stuck on the bank. And they didn't use fishing rods, but instead they used these nets. Here's an example of that. And what happened on these nets was that they would throw them, as you can see, but on the bottom of the nets they would attach weights or giant sinkers so that they go to the bottom of the shallow area, they trap all the fish in there, and they grab the nets, and they pull them back in. And as a result, as they pull them in, they're going to run into various hooks and snags and other junk in the water. And that's why you can imagine the fishermen are there on the banks cleaning the nets because they haul in everything, not just the fish, but whatever is captured on the way down. So here's an example of a spot where they would do that. This is called Tagua Springs. And what happens is right before the shore, there's some warm water springs. So the water that comes out is actually warmer than the lake water, which grows a bunch of algae, which attracts a bunch of minnows, which attracts all the fish. So this is a really good traditional fishing hole, which is why most people identify that as the original site of the calling of the first disciples. They don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say, but they think if fishermen were casting nets back then, this is a pretty good spot to do it. So this is probably where they were. So here's another picture of the sea and another picture of the shore where Jesus would come walking and surprise them and do miracles. And One more picture. And do all kinds of things. And so as we go into the next few moments as I read this, I want you to imagine this beautiful scene on the shores of the Sea of Galilee looks something like this, where Jesus is calling his original disciples. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and following. It says this, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here in Mark chapter 1, essentially what you have are two sets of brothers. You have Simon and Andrew, one set, and James and John, another set. These guys are fishermen by trade. In other words, this is their identity. It's what they do. This is how they spend the majority of their time. Now, no doubt, it probably goes back a ways because as you learn from the text, James and John were in a partnership or family business with their father, Zebedee. I know a lot of times from the pulpit what you hear is that, oh, fishermen, they're a bunch of rough-cut, rude sailor types who don't know anything, uneducated, you know, lower down, whatever. And that could be true for some fishermen, but as you study the history and culture of this area, what you find is that fishing was a major industry. So, for example, like farming today, you could have a subsistence farmer, but as is the case most of the time, there are, there's a huge range 
of farming operations. Yeah, there's one person who's got a little family farm they do for fun, and then there's the other family whose great-great-granddad started a long time ago, and he bought some land and passed it down, and the next guy bought some land and passed it down, and the next guy bought some land and passed it down, and now they have this little limited liability corporation with all kinds of property, and if you think about it in like today's term, in northeast Missouri, uh, farming land is $4,000 an acre. So, if you have a thousand acres, which really isn't a huge farm, it's not necessarily a corporate, that could be a family, then you have four million dollars worth of land. Then if you have three combines at about a hundred thousand apiece, you got three hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment, then you throw in the silos and the barns, eventually you're going to have some hired hands, you're going to have suppliers if you do like fertilization or crop dusting or anything like that, you might have a small plane. And all of a sudden, ting, 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 prices go up, up, up. And these guys jump in <clears throat> their $100,000 machines. They track with the satellites. They measure exactly how much they put in each hole. And they go down the line. This is the guy who walks into the corner cafe wearing overalls and has a $10 million family business. <laughs> okay? It's big. Similarly, these fishermen... Wouldn't necess- depending on where they're at in the scale, wouldn't necessarily be uncouth. They could, in fact, be very wise investors who are managing a fleet, who have suppliers who are trading both in Egypt and in Asia and in Europe, supplying fish to the majority of the region. So why does that matter? Well, when they, Jesus calls them and they drop their nets and follow him, it's not like he's dropping his $50 fishing pole. It's highly possible that two of these brothers who are in a partnership with their dad are leaving a major family business. Look, they own boats. They have hired people working for them. They probably have suppliers, distributors, etc., etc. It's a big deal. So here are these fishermen, and they've known this for their whole lives. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is our family. This is how we live. This is our lives and our very identity. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, some dude walks up on the shore and says, drop all that and follow me. Your major industry, your family history, everything you've ever known, throw it aside and come after me. Now, if somebody did that to you today, even, even not that much, like say you're in a store and someone walks up to you and they say, and you don't have any idea who they are, and they're like, hey, come here, come here, I want to talk to you. <laughs> you're like, whoa, <laughs> Who are you and what do you want? You may even pull out your phone and call the police and start pointing. This is a little bit weird. But for some reason, all of a sudden, when this stranger from Nazareth walks up on the beach and calls to these people, they drop everything and follow him. Why? The reason is, is because what Mark is going to show you throughout the next few passages is that there's this unique, special aura, this divine, almighty, all-powerful authority that goes with this figure. In other words, when Jesus speaks, things happen. When Jesus speaks to evil spirits, he says, come out, and they come out. When Jesus speaks to the wind and says, quiet down, be still, it stops. When Jesus says to the dead little girl, get up, she does. And when Jesus condemns a fig tree, it withers. And when he gives a great cry, all of a sudden the temple veil is split in half. You see, when Jesus says things, it happens. 
It's as though as soon as the very words hit his lips, they come to be. And God said, let there be light. And boom, it was. And God said, and boom, it happened. And Jesus speaks and all of a sudden, boom, it takes place. There is this unique, almighty, divine, unquestionable, unstoppable authority all of a sudden placed on this one guy. And here he is, and he comes up, and he says to these guys who have identified their whole lives for who knows how many generations as fishermen, this is my identity, this is who I am. He says, stop. That's not who I'm calling you to be now. You will no longer be fishermen, but instead... You'll be fishers of men. All of your life circulated around this one identity. Now it's going to circulate around Jesus, around knowing him, around loving him, around following him, living for him, and leading others to him. In other words, their whole identity, their entire sense of self-worth, where they find their meaning and purpose is now not from this or that family, this or that profession, or this or that village, but instead this single person so what does that say to you church hey the same exact thing you know when we take our identity we start doing it from the very moment we we come out of the womb we start figuring out hey what family am i from where what language do i speak what house do i live in how do i function what am i good at is it math is it sports is it drawing is it reading is it music How do I find my place? Where do I fit in this planet? And then as we go throughout our days, we evaluate our self-worth, our our performance, our essence, and our value based on those things. We're like, yeah, I performed really well today, so I feel good. Or this went well, and all of a sudden they recognized it, and now I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But Jesus is saying, no, drop all of that. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I equipped you with it, but I am repurposing it. I am changing it and using it for something better. So that you no longer find your identity or self-worth in any of that. That's the wrong identity. Instead, you find your self-worth in me. So Jesus comes. He commands. And what he says is, identifying with any of those other things is wrong. Who and what you identify with is here. It is Christ himself. So the problem is the wrong identity. The solution is is that Jesus is repurposing it and he is doing it by his unique, unequivocal, divine authority. Jesus commands and things happen. So, my question then, going out to you today is this, is where are you finding your identity? Where are you finding your self-worth? And I can, I can help you find that if you're, if you're wondering. What happens is this. At the end of the day, how do you evaluate the day? When you're looking back over the day and you're saying, okay, this or that, this or that, this or that, this is going to determine whether I feel good or whether I don't, how do you evaluate it? That's where you're placing your value. That's where you're getting your identity. And that's where you're determining your self-worth. And so a lot of times at the end of the day, If you're like, yeah, I feel good, ask yourself why. If I feel bad, ask yourself why. And then identify those voices that are coming at you and understand, are those the voices of Jesus or are those the voices of someone else? 
And if it's the voice of someone or something else, then you have to ask it, does that identify with, or does that agree with Jesus? And if it does, then fine, well, and good. But if it doesn't, then you dismiss it and say, no, no, no. You who are speaking to me right now, whether it is your friends, your family, your occupation, or even yourself, you say, you are wrong. You do not have the authority that Christ does. You're not the divine almighty God. I'm not going to take my cues from you, but instead I take my cues from the voice of Christ. So I repurpose my day, I repurpose my life so that my occupation, my family, my time, my money or whatever else is not evaluated by those other things, but instead evaluated by Jesus. And so I come to the end of the day and I say, okay, all right, how am I feeling? Well, let's see here. Did I do a good job or do I bad bad job? Well, what's my job? Well, my job is to point others to Jesus. Okay, my family. Did I point them to Jesus? Not did I give them the ultimate vacation? Not did I dress them better than anyone else? Not are they getting the best education available? Not are they on the upward mobility track? But instead, my question is, in all my efforts today, in everything I did, did I actually move them one step closer to Christ? Did I do that? If I did, then that day was a success. And if I didn't, then I was following after the wrong meaning or purpose for my life. So too with my time, the question is not, did I have a good time or how am I feeling? I might be feeling very poorly. I might be feeling totally spent. I might be feeling exhausted at the end of the day. But if I exhausted myself, if I spent myself on that which is good and it brought others closer to Christ, then that exhaustion is healthy. And I can say to myself, yes, that was a meaningful day. I did that well. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is this. When you hear the voices calling in your life, when you hear different things speaking to you and saying, hey, this is your identity, this is your value, this is your self-worth, when you pull up to the stoplight and some of their car pulls up next to you and you look out your window and say, wow, or man, I wish I, or whatever comes to your head, you stop that thought and you ask yourself the question, where is my identity right now? Am I pursuing Christ? Is this who he's calling to me to be? Or am I listening to another voice? That's a big deal because I think in our society where it's very different from this, we still have major identity issues. As a result, we're getting all tangled up inside and you see suicide and depression and all these other things going just like this. The reality is not the next self-help book or the next tourist stop or anything along the way, but instead to stop listening to all of that and say, what is Jesus saying to me? Look, we watch movies like Star Wars, and we think it's a really big deal when all of a sudden there's this special chosen individual that the force is calling out to and everybody's eyeballs raise and go, wow, that lightsaber, it's calling out to you. That's so amazing. <laughs> whoop de doo Here is a passage of Scripture which is showing Jesus calling out to you. This is the only begotten Son of the living God, crucified and coming again, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is saying, hey, I am calling you to take whatever it is you were before, farmer, fisherman, scientist, Mechanic, delivery driver, homemaker, engineer, teacher, musician, whatever. 
and take that old, repurposed, worn-out identity and draw all of those things in and use them for Jesus. Now your life is different. This is a struggle. I know I face it too. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor, so yes, I spend most of my time doing uh, Jesus stuff and church work, but it's still a struggle each and every day to say, is this meaningful? Is this worthwhile? Is this going in the right direction? And the answer is not all of those other things, but this one question, how is Christ directing me? So as we get ready to close this morning, I want to give you one more example, and that's this. Imagine this. We've been talking about lakes and boats and a lot of other things this morning. I know not everyone in here is a boat owner, but just think of, if you don't own a boat, think of something. But imagine you owned a boat, or and if you do, this is especially for you. But imagine this boat, okay? You've got a boat. You've got a lake house. You've got a cabin. You've got a whatever. You're on the shores of Lake Michigan, and you're enjoying this thing that God gave you. The question then when you use that boat, or that car, or that truck, or that whatever you have, is not, did I have fun, did I do this, or did I do that, but did I use it to bring glory to God? So, for example, I take some friends out on the boat. Did I use this day or this opportunity to talk about Jesus? It's not just a boat, but now this thing has been repurposed to fit my ultimate purpose for life, that's to bring glory to God. It doesn't mean that every single minute of that day you have to be having a Bible study. You can still have lunch too. But at some point, hopefully throughout the day, whether you're putting on sunscreen or doing whatever, you're at least bringing God into the picture and directing others towards him so that that boat is no longer a boat, but it's a real life way for me to talk to others about Jesus and show how to make them become fishers of men. And what happens then is this. Listen carefully, church. You got one of those boats, and it's never that. If that boat is never, ever that, and every day at the lake you're tired and worn out, and you ask yourself the question, did I point him to Jesus? And the answer is no. Then the time for plucking out the eye has come. Now it's time to cut off the hand and say, this boat is not doing what it's designed to do, leading others to Christ. That does not fit with my purpose. I need to get rid of that and find something else. I know this is a tricky thing, and you may be sitting there saying, okay, well, I don't have a boat, and I'm never going to have a boat, so does this apply to me? The thing about it is, is as a Christian, you have to be okay with lots of different people being in a different spot than you are. So for one person, a boat may be great. They're using that boat full-time as their evangelism vessel. <laughs> great. But for you, that may not be the thing, and you have to be okay with that. And you can't be jealous of the fact that someone else has something you don't. You just need to praise God and say, I'm glad they have that, and I hope that they're using it for him. It's different. All of these, these, James and John and Peter and his brother Andrew, they're not the same. The first two fishermen are out there and they're casting nets. 
But the other two fishermen, they're with their dad and their family business, and it looks like their operation is significantly larger than the other. But when Jesus calls them into fellowship with him, it doesn't matter. I can't remember an entire time in this gospel where Jesus says, oh yeah, you guys come over here. You had the big family business, so you're close to me. And these guys who just had a couple nets, they're on the outside. No way. All of a sudden, when you're called into the community of Christ, it doesn't matter what you do have or what you don't have. What matters is what you're doing with it. Is it fitting your purpose? Are you calling people to be fishers of men? Are you bringing them into the community of Jesus and making disciples? If you are, then that's a success. And if you're not, cut it off and get rid of it. You have been repurposed. You have been called. You have been chosen. Jesus is speaking directly to you. What is he saying? Ask yourself that question. It's not the lightsaber calling to you. It's not the force. It's the Holy Spirit in Christ himself. And he's saying, I'm changing your identity. It is no longer in any of those other things. Now it's in me. What are you going to do with it? Problem is we have the wrong identity. The solution is that Jesus, by his unique authority, repurposes it. And our job or our responsibility is to say, okay, I submit to that authority in my life. This is one of the really cool things, just to leave you with a note of encouragement before we close, about finding your identity in Jesus. Because when you do this, your identity never changes. Unlike your occupation, which has ebbs and flows, Jesus never changes. Unlike your approval among other people, Christ's approval of you never changes. Unlike the fact that other people will leave us and forsake us, Jesus never does. And unlike the fact that others' love is unconditional, Jesus never is. So if you truly want to be happy, if you truly want what's best for you, if you really want to find your meaning, purpose, and identity in life, then submit to Jesus' purpose. And then, even if you're tired, even if you're worn out, your approval, your feeling, your rating, your star level, whatever, at the end, end of the day, is not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon anybody else. But only on Christ alone, who loves you unconditionally, and his plans and purposes for you are good. That's a good place to be. The problem is the wrong identity. We identify with everything else. The solution so let Jesus, by his authority, change our identity. As a result, we submit to his purpose for our lives. Father, we thank you for calling us, making us disciples and fishers of men. And I, Lord, I readily admit that many times I kind of forget my purpose and I look to other stuff and I wonder if it's fulfilling or fitting and I get tired and worn out. But I'm thankful that at the end of the day, Lord, uh, you're not calling me to find myself in my performance. You're not calling me to find myself in my friends. You're not calling me to find myself in my finances. But you're calling me to find myself in you. And you never change. You never give up. You're always good. And you do all things well. 
And Lord, I pray you just help me to locate myself right there all the time, forever, as called out and chosen by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.